week of August 13th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 626, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. What are we going to do in 40 episodes? Um, say that it is, uh, hold on, I'm really bad at math. 40 plus 26 will be six. Oh, oh. Are we, we going to skip that devil, episode? The devil episode. <laughs> Maybe I'm thinking of satanic <laughs> stuff because there was a story in the New York Times that there are fewer serial killers today. Uh, they're saying technology is making it harder for people to hide. You just can't get away with it. You're, you're, you can be tracked in so many ways, it's harder for people to get away with being a serial killer. In 1987, law enforcement was tracking, they were at least aware of, in the United States, almost 200 serial killers, active serial killers, 198 people to be exact. Of course, they didn't know who the person was, but they were seeing patterns and recognizing that there were about 198 active serial killers around the country. That's like four state. That's creepy. Now. Uh, 30 plus years later and 20, no, 40, no, 30 plus years later, right? Yeah. 30 years later in 2018, there were just 12 that they were tracking in the entire country. Now, maybe some would say they're getting better at hiding themselves, but more likely they're, you know, you don't hide bodies. So when people disappear or die, they know something's going on. And when they can track it and say, oh, these are linked, they know they've got a serial killer. Just 12 down from 200. I mean, we got to make America great serial killers again. Come on, people. This is, this is, this is dreadful. I, I don't think that rolls off the tongue the way MAGA does. You know, no. make but what, what is Hollywood going to do? This, this is a crisis for Hollywood. What will they do for television and movies if they don't have serial killers? Half the primetime crime shows are obsessed with serial killers when there are fewer of them than ever before. Or you know, actually, last times. night I was, I was uh, sending out the... Uh, Sally Lloyd Junkie newsletter, The Marquee, and I turned on uh, CNN just in the background as background noise, and what did they have? A show that I've never seen before that Donnie Wahlberg is the host of called Very Scary People, and it was all about the Night Stalker crime back in the 1980s, the serial killer back in the 1980s, and how they caught him and everything, and I just thought, really? Like, this is what you, you, you got rid of, like, all of these other shows for, for very scary people. I don't think that's such a good idea. But uh, you're right, though. It, it is very easy to catch people these days, uh, if only because of cell phones. And that case recently in Idaho where there was the, the four students that were killed, mm-hmm. and they said, we don't know. We don't have any leads. We don't know where to turn. We're, we, we don't know who committed this crime. And I said, well, that's very easy. Look at the cell towers that were around there and subpoena every single carrier and get the records for every single cell phone that pinged off of one of those towers. Your killer is among them. And that's exactly what they did. It took three, two months, but that's exactly what they wound up doing. One, of course, serial killers didn't arise until people lived in more dense areas like cities, which happened thousands of years ago, but you can't have a serial killer in a small town or in a little village or a community that everyone knows everyone else. It has to be a big enough community where people can be somewhat anonymous. Otherwise, others would notice, hey, where the hell did Joe go? You know, like it wouldn't take days or weeks to figure out somebody was missing uh, and you couldn't uh, move around and on. Everybody knows who everyone is. So it took civilization and big cities really for serial killers to begin 
And now it looks like even more technology is sending them on their way. Well, I don't How did this become the serial killer show? I this don't know. Well, like- you know. We want we want to bump up the numbers. You know, we got 666 coming up. We've got fewer okay. serial killers. And I don't use my phone to track serial killers, but I do use it to track, you know, Broadway shows. I just bought tickets for touring productions of To Kill a Mockingbird with Ooh. Richard Thomas for my mom and her friend and I, because I didn't see it on Broadway. And uh, I'm going to send them to Aladdin in January. So in November, hopefully my mom, who's recovering from sepsis, will be well enough to go see To Kill a Mockingbird. And in January, I'm certain she will be well enough to go see Aladdin, both shows I recommend. And Funny Girl is on tour. And let me tell this. Last week I said, hey, I don't know who the star is yet. The website for the tour of Funny Girl, which I went to and checked out, did not say or name any stars. But apparently, they had already announced newcomer Katerina McCrimmon as Fanny Bryce and Grammy winner Melissa Manchester as her mother. So those two will be touring with the show. I'm sure they'll do a great job. And you know, if you want to go see Funny Girl, check it out. But my prediction of who would be uh, in that lead didn't pan out. But there you go. Well, uh, I don't know if I'd see it when it comes to, to Los Angeles. I just, I don't know. Would well, it's not a good you? show. It's not a good show. Yeah. Uh, maybe Katarina McCrimmon will make it a good show. It's really a show that needs a star-making performance. That's the only reason to see it, just like I said about uh, Pal Joey and some other shows. If you don't have a person that's, oh my God, they have to do this character in this show, you don't want to do it. But, you know, I would still wish the tour good luck. Melissa Manchester's a talent. But, you know... If you if you ever see us make a mistake, let us know. But you know we got a lot to cover this week. What are we going to talk about? What are we going to mess up this week that people can write in and say, "Hey, didn't you know?" <laughs> well, uh, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are feeling the heat, Oof. probably because we're getting closer to six 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 episode six. <laughs> That's true, yeah. and and the climate crisis. Right. Well, hopefully, so are the studios and streamers because Worldwide Box Office wants to get back on track, but this prolonged strike could fundamentally change the business and not in a good way. We'll give you the latest on the strike talks, why revenue sharing isn't so crazy a demand, and the good news for visual effects people over at Marvel. There, there's more news, by the way, about Lizzo, and none of it is good. Plus, you can tell summer is over because streaming is exploding Four different properties hit the one billion minute mark. That's pretty remarkable. That's four. We are wasting our time in front of the boob tube. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at Disney's big wager on, get this, gambling. Actually, it's more of a sure thing, probably. Can we get it on? Can we, that's my question. How much do you think it would cost us to get in on, on the action, Michael? A couple I mean, billion dollars. Oh, um... I'm just going to, I'm just crossing off my to-do list call by Iger. We're not, okay, I don't have to do that anymore. Okay, well, of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. But before I do that, remind me, Michael, when you, after you go through it, remind me to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in China. Ooh, I will. All right, we're looking at box office around the world, and we like to keep an eye on China and Korea and India and Japan, some of the biggest markets around the world. But if the trades don't do a story on some of those markets, like Korea and India and Japan, we are lacking information in time to include it in our weekly podcast. So we've missed some shows from last week that came, uh, some movies that came out in Korea. We missed some other information. We're always trying to fill in the blanks and you're going to find some Korean films on this list that weren't on it a week ago. But we do have news on India 
We've got box office around the world, but the Indian box office isn't just doing its best weekend since the pandemic. It's doing its best weekend of all time in terms of pure box office dollars. So that's great to news. But China, of course, is coming back strong. The number one movie around the world is No More Bets, a China crime drama that we mentioned last week is doing so well just in previews, just with a few episodes. Well, now that's uh, now that it's airing all week long, No More Bets has exploded at the box office. $196 million this week. It's at $250 million worldwide. So the number one movie around the world is the Chinese drama, No More Bets. At number two is Barbie, another $150 million worldwide. It's at $1,184,000,000. Greta Gerwig is now the top, the director of the top grossing, the female director of the top grossing movie uh, of all time in North America and worldwide. And she's moving on up the charts. She's at number 25 on the all-time list. Barbie is at number 25 with a bullet. Though Barbie is a pacifist. I want you to, uh, I'm going to read something, and I want you to tell me what word you think I like the most in this sentence. Okay. Adjusted for inflation. (laughs) Well, well, Barbie will soon pass up the Dark Knight's $534 million to become the top grossing Warner's release of all time in North America after finishing Sunday with a domestic haul of $526.3 million unadjusted. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I beat you to the punch. Sorry about that. (laughs) You stole my punchline. No More Bets made $200 million. Barbie made $150 million. And Meg to the Trench, the shark movie, is not doing, is it a shark? Or is it some kind of other? Megalodon. Come on, everybody knows it's a megalodon. of course. So it's like a shark-like thing. But it's not doing great in North America. But hey, you make movies for the entire world. And this one is doing very well overseas. You want to know why this movie was made? China, $98 million in China. Well, it made $115 million this week worldwide, and it's at $257 million and counting total. Uh, Oppenheimer is still doing tremendously well. A three-hour adult drama about the building of the atomic bomb that is all about ideas and subtlety and and show trials and political intrigue. And this movie is playing like a blockbuster. It grossed another $100 million this week. It's at $650 million worldwide. It's about to, you know, multiply by seven its budget of $100 million. So this is going to hit $800 million. Who knows where it's going to end up? It's still making $100 million a week. You know, here in, in Los Angeles, they've had to add 6 a.m. IMAX screenings because it's so popular. Everybody and wants the, to see it on IMAX. Cool. Yeah. I, I, by the way, it's totally worth seeing on IMAX. If you, have you seen it? I did see it in IMAX, yes. It's, I, you know, I have to thank IMAX. I couldn't get into a screening because they were all sold out, and they held a, a screening at their office. And man, oh man, it, it is a beautiful movie. Were you the only one there? No, there were about 30 people. Oh, cool. All right. Well, back to the charts and China. Creation of the Gods Part 1 made another $50 million. It's at $288 million worldwide. That's a fantasy based on a classic tale that all Chinese people are familiar with, much like Robin Hood or King Arthur or something like that. And then we come to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. That made $43 million around the world. It's at $95 million and counting. And its box office, I believe, is not the uh, success that they were hoping for in China. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about this for a second, because this is kind of the issue with a lot of Hollywood movies in 
China. You know, they open up and immediately they're, they're declared dead on arrival, dead on arrival. Nobody's going to see them. Well, yeah, that's probably because you have no more bets with 154,000 showtimes. And you then have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with 7,000 showtimes. So, of course, it doesn't do as well. It's relegated to, you know, a fraction of the show. Is it, are they sold out uh, showings where like people want to buy tickets, but they can't get in? Do we have that information? Were they able to promote the movie? Did they have a release date well enough in advance that the studio could set it up and make sure new, people knew the movie was coming out? Because that's another issue in China. I don't know. Those are all very valid questions because, of course, very often uh, in China, you're told, hey, guess what? You can release your movie here. Tomorrow. Uh, you, can, you can release it in a week. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Uh, and, you know, it's just, let's put it this way. It has as many showtimes as Barbie and that, you know, apparently audiences you know, left Barbie, all the men were like, oh, that's a horrible movie. <laughs> it's like, in, in China, that is. So we don't know about um, we don't know about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and whether it had more screenings scheduled and then uh, there oh, was no interest and so it got cut. No, it no, definitely did not. Well, that we've had that with other movies where they they lost screenings on Saturday and Sunday because you know there wasn't the demand. But we don't know. You're just guessing, perhaps. Well, it has fewer show times, therefore uh, it couldn't make any more money than it did. That's what well, you're correct. suggesting. What, that is, yes. And by the way, I don't know if you've seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's actually a good movie with some really unique animation. And if it wasn't for Spider-Man, those Spider-Man Spider-Verse Which movies. Brilliant, yeah. They would be, consi- it would be, you know, considered a really, you know. Groundbreaking. Top, yeah, groundbreaking movie. But of course, it, Spider-Verse movies kind of did similar things. Not exactly the same, but similar things. But it's a good movie. Cool. Yeah, I've heard it's got good reviews. Um, it's playing to its audience well. It's not tearing it up. Um, I, can't I wonder see- if, if releasing it in a different time would have helped. Maybe. Well, it's summertime. It seems like the right time for a, a, a fun movie. You mean I don't know about in China whether it doesn't work with the sk- release schedule or what, and I can't find out whether when it was announced that that movie would be released in China. So I don't know if they had a good setup time. But that's something more to reach out to us about. If you know about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem and whether it's the demand simply wasn't there or they're choking the demand by not giving it enough screen times, let us know. Yes, you can write to us. Uh, our email address, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on voicemail, 888-567-SAND is our email address. That's 888-567-7263. And we are on Twitter, which I, I guess I'm still refusing to call X. The, the, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Yes, uh, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, and we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. You may refuse, but I updated my phone software, and suddenly I saw Twitter is gone, and it just says X. I know, (laughs) I know. Well, now we're moving on to India, uh, and India had a great, great weekend. It's best of all time. They sold more tickets, more admissions, than they have in over a decade. So it's not just a post-pandemic high. It's the best number of tickets sold in a decade, and they hit $47 million at the total weekend box office. I don't know whether that includes Thursday night or just Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I don't know how movies are released as such in India, but that $47 million is the biggest weekend total of all time in India. Say it. 
Not adjusted for inflation. That's right. Not adjusted for inflation, but it's still a major achievement. And it's led by Jailer, a Tamil action film, which opened to about $35 million. Now, that is not according to Comscore. Comscore said, look, we did not get any official data about this movie, but it has been reported. And we understand that they're saying it may have grossed about $35 million. So full credit to Comscore for saying, hey, you know, this movie is missing for our charts. And here's why. We appreciate that. Trans, rather than just being annoyed that you didn't get official data, they're like, look, this movie's out there. Here's what we've heard, but we don't have any data on that. We've also seen trade stories about Jailer and other movies. So we have the Tamil film Jailer making $35 million on its opening weekend. Scrolling down, we have Gadar 2. I assume it's not pronounced Gadar because that probably wouldn't make it by the censors, but it's G-A-D-A-R-2. It's actually a period film set during a, a 1971 war with Pakistan. It's like an action film with a son going to rescue his dad in Pakistan, but his dad's not there, so the dad has to go rescue the son in Pakistan. So it's a big nationalistic movie about their war with Pakistan. That made $14 million in its opening weekend. Then we have uh, the other movie, Rocky Arani Ki Prem Kahani which is a Hindi rom-com. That movie made $11 million. It's at $31 million total. And we have OMG 2, a sequel to OMG, which is about school and sex education. This one is about a father going to bat for his son. It's a comedy drama um, about the dad as a faithful devotee of Lord Shiva, and he has to recognize his son has been mistreated and stand up for him. So OMG 2 opened up to about $5 million. Then we have Bola Shankar, a Telugu film, um, which is a remake of a Tamil film. It's a revenge thing about a brother getting revenge for how they treated his sister. I seem to remember the original. This one opened up to a pretty modest $3 million, especially when you know it cost, I believe, $12 million to make. So you're looking at a Telugu film that remakes a Tamil film, one or two or three Hindi films, and on top we have a Tamil film. So that's great to see. Lots of different areas of the Indian film industry are vibrant. Biggest weekend of all time in terms of total box office dollars. That's great to see. I always imagined that the Indian audience would watch any movie made by anyone. You didn't care if you were Hindi, you were happy, you're used to subtitles, so you can have a big Tamil hit, a big Telugu hit. With all these remakes, I'm like, why? Why are you remaking a Telugu film into Tamil and a Hindi film into... I'm getting the sense that maybe there's a little more polarization in the movie-going aspect of India. We know that the government is very nationalistic and turning, trying to turn Hindu versus Muslim and uh, breaking people up and, and dividing and conquering. Not a fan of Modi here. So maybe that's happening in the film industry as well. Sperling just gave you the information about our contact. If you've got some insight into that, maybe we're crazy, uh, please do let us know. But a big weekend at the Indian box office led by Jailer, the Tamil film. Uh, By the way, have week- you ever figured out how to how to count in Indian numbering the number Indian numbering? I still can't figure out what a crore is. Well, yes, I've I, I've got a little cheat sheet for myself. When we get a a uh, um, when we get a number in crore, I go to the rupees into dollars website. You know, a, a converter. I input the number of crore and then I add seven zeros, and that gives me the equivalent in U.S. dollars to what we're talking about. Oh. So um, it it was a little trial and error. Once I knew what something was in crore and in dollars, I could figure out and then tried tried that a number of times, and that would consistently get me the number I was told it was. And so, uh, yeah, 
rupees into crore is a little tricky for some reason for our, our small brains and we don't have abacuses. <laughs> so, um, yes. So that's what I've ended up doing. And it is pretty consistent. You can say, okay, yeah, that's 12 million or 1.2 million, you know, it consistently can see like, oh, that movie, the variety said made $3 million and Wikipedia said it was uh, 120 crore. And that works out to $2.7 million. So you can say, okay, yeah, that's on target. When you take the, the crore and you add seven zeros, that makes the equivalent number of rupees and you convert that into dollars. So that's how we do our box office every week. We're just trying to, we love to keep track of box office all over the world. So anytime you find a film in France or Japan or anywhere that we're not tracking or we haven't heard about, please do let us know. But you've all heard about Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. Another $28 million this week. It's at $520 million worldwide. But this sucker's going to struggle to get past $600 to $700 million. So that's probably where it's going to end up. You know, but that's, that's how, you know, the, the idea or the illusion of success or failure is so strongly imprinted on our brains. We have Elemental from Pixar. That's just doubling its box off its budget as well. The Pixar movie cost about $200 million to make. It's now made $444 million. But Disney's trying to change the attitude towards this movie and saying, look, we're already going to be, we're going to be profitable from theatrical alone. To which we say, really? Because it costs $200 million to make. But that tells you how we don't have access to the books. And all we can do is say, well, we have a rough budget we believe in somewhat. And we're going to triple that for the worldwide box office and say, once all is said and done, this is probably an unquestionable hit. If you can triple your budget at the worldwide box office, other things being the same. So we would say if Elemental hit $600 million, that would be a pure success story. In this case, Disney's getting out front saying, look, it's having great legs. It's made $450 million worldwide. It made another $20 million this week, and it's not done. And we are telling you it's profitable already. from the It's going to be profitable from theatrical alone. And the Pixar people also point out, hey, look, you know, our budgets are a little more honest because we're always including everything, all the overhead for a Pixar film. That includes uh, exec budgets and other things that other people don't necessarily include in their movie budgets. We are giving you a more honest budget when we say $200 million for Elemental. So, okay, so there's less, you know, less stuff that's being hidden in terms of cost. That's what Pixar argues. It's more than doubled it. It's probably going to end up at two and a half times if they're lucky. Maybe it'll hit $500 million. In which case they're saying that's profitable right now. And we know there's a profit for Talk to Me. Have you seen this Aussie horror film? Did you see it at Sundance? A24 picked it up. It got great buzz. It made $16 million this week. It's at just under $50 million worldwide. And I have a friend who's good taste in movies. He said it was really good. He was really happy with it. They're making a sequel. Yeah, talk to me. I think just a two instead of the T-O. Haunted Ooh. Mansion is scary because it's not doing that well. It's at six, it made $16 million this week. It's at $75 million worldwide. Uh, back to China, we have one and only, a breakdancing flick. That made another $16 million. Uh, the animated film that's almost three hours long, Chang On, that made another $13 million. That's at about the $250 million mark. Opening up, I think, in France is Gran Turismo, based on a true story. That made $11 million in a few overseas territories, not here in North America. Uh, it's gotten reviews like, well, you know what? It's not bad. Uh, you know what? My, my daughter went to see it this weekend. I think they had some advanced screens. Oh, we didn't preview. have any budgets on that, any box office, yeah? Yeah, I think that what they do is they add that all to the opening weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, or in some cases, what they have to do is give it to the movie that was playing in that theater. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Weird. 
Um, and, and what did she so say? She liked it. She loved it. She was like, I want to do that now. <laughs> the video game, not right? You a career. <laughs> yeah, you're not getting it. Did you see all those other people that didn't make the team? Yeah, that's generally what happened. And then you make the team and then you die. Yeah, so, you know, much. be careful. So, yeah, Gran Turismo off to a solid start. Uh, back to Korea. We have our first big movie in Korea, Concrete Utopia. It's a thriller about a post-earthquake survival. It made about $11 million this week. Scrolling down to Korea, we have Smugglers, which made another $6 million this week. We did not have this crime film on our radar last week. It's at $32 million total. So it made about $26 million last week. These are rough estimates, not for the total, but I'm sort of figuring out what it probably made Monday through Thursday, because we only have the weekend uh, box office for smugglers. So my estimate is it opened up to about $26 million last week. So a good opening last week for smugglers. And now it's at $32 million and counting. Scrolling down, I think there's one more Korean film, uh, Ransomed. A thriller opened up modestly last week, maybe about $6 million and falling kind of hard. It just made $1 million this week. So uh, that's falling far and fast. And is there anything else to talk about? Sound of Freedom. The filmmakers are like, it's not a QAnon film. We're like, well, that's what you get for casting Jim Caviezel because he supports well, and, QAnon. <laughs> and kind of leaning into that. They kind of, let's face it, they kind of leaned into that. And it's all about child trafficking, which should not be a partisan idea, but nonetheless is at the heart of QAnon, the, an absurd conspiracy theory surrounding the very real problem of child smuggling and child sex rings. And of course, we just had a big bust in America of people from around the world. Some countries busted a, up a big international ring of people trading material. And the U.S. is one of the major sources of that problem. So it is an important issue. Too bad it had to be politicized. But the movie has crossed over $175 million from North America alone. They've got the rest of the world to go. Uh, the Last Voyage of the Demeter or the Demeter, that movie is not going to make it around the world. It'll be released, but it's not going to do very well. It opened to $7 million, poor reviews and the like. In Japan... See how we travel the globe for you. In Japan, The Boy and the Heron, this is Hayao Miyazaki's swan song. It's showing good legs. It made another $6 million this week. It's at $40 million and counting. I'm very much looking forward to seeing this movie when it gets around here. Uh, but that's a lot going on. And the box office is doing well in India, in North America, in a lot of different countries. In Korea. China's having success with its own movies, even if uh, international films are finding it harder to break through. Gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could keep this going? What's going to happen with all these strikes? Is there any good news? Actually, there is. There huh? is. The AMPTP got in touch with uh, the WGA. They've decided at this They probably point, sent them a note. Hey, write them something. They like that. Yeah, they're, they're uh, <laughs> exactly. Hey, could you write us back an email? Um, it better be good. That's all I'm saying. We got <laughs> all the talent on that side of the table. Um, th that said, uh, I think at this point, the AMPTP, rather than trying to do uh, two negotiations at once, they've essentially said, let's, let's go after the WGA. We think they'll be a little bit more easy to deal with. Uh, well, they've boy, always I, been the one that's hardest, though, right? That's the reputation, right. that they are the most ready to strike and the strong, strongest willed. But Fran Drescher ain't messing. Right. She's They're like, like, you know what? Do we go up against the recognizable faces, or do we go up against these guys that nobody's heard of before? So they are talking. They are talking, and uh, the Writers Guild kind of came back. And remember... Last week, when they did this, they said, listen, we were just going to tell you that we had met and we had discussed a few things. We weren't going to tell you what we discussed. We weren't going to tell you anything other than we've met and we've agreed to maybe meet again. 
uh, and we agreed that we would not negotiate this in the press. However, since they immediately went and started talking to the press, we'll tell you everything that happened. Well, this time they came back and said, hey, the AMPTP did not go and talk about what we've discussed in the press, so we're going to honor that as well. Just know things are going well. And then, of course, back channel, everything I've heard is, hey, the AMPTP came back and they have made some concessions. Well, so of course be- they have, but are they significant and are they on the major issues? Right. Well, but that's the first movement in 100 yeah. days. Right. So at least things are headed in a more positive direction. All right. We won't call writers pinheads. You know. Ooh, we got that. <laughs> okay, check. And more good news is that there is unionization happening, or at least people who have unionized and other people who are talking about unionizing. And boy, should they, Kim Kardashian, first at Marvel. The visual effects people have never been unionized, and they suffer for it. They have terrible work hours, they have tough pay conditions, and the only ones treated worse than the visual effects people at a studio are the independent visual effects companies, which regularly get pummeled and then go out of business. Vulture broke the news that at Marvel, uh, the visual effects folk are voting to unionize per IATSE, and there could be a union vote as soon as August 21st, so by next week. Next Monday, when we are recording our next episode, the Marvel visual effects folk could officially be voting to unionize. So that is great to hear. And Bob Iger came out and said, you know what? I'm really personally committed to ending the strike as soon as possible. He's personally committed. So rather than saying writers and actors are unrealistic, he's like, yes, I want to make a deal. So that's progress. And finally, reality television. Some of the top stars in reality TV are saying, we create a lot of content. It gets serialized and syndicated and resold and shown all over the world. We're not making money from it. The idea that like we're just lucky to have this platform and we can benefit in other ways, no, sorry, we're doing actual work here and people are making money off of it and we need to make more money and unionize and have residuals and stuff like that. SAG-AFTRA has reached out to some of those top people and said, you're right, let's talk. So there could be some unionization in reality television. And what they all want is a cut of the revenue, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly what uh, you know, Kim Kardashian and the, the Kardashians are learning is you used to get uh, maybe some kind of residuals when you were on E, the entertainment you know, channel, uh, because that's a linear television uh, network. But now that you're on streaming over at Hulu, yeah, you don't get that. One thing I'd like to point out, though, is that the unionization of the Marvel workers is not the visual effects crews that work for outside companies. Well, no, it's the ones who work for them. Yeah. Yeah. There's 80 that work for Marvel studios. And then there's thousands, if not a 10,000 or more people that work for all these third party companies. But no one's ever been unionized anywhere. Right. In the visual effects world. Right. So this is the first step in which hopefully will mean all of them getting unionized because they should all be union people because boy, do those outside companies get treated like dirt. Oh yeah. Oh no. I mean, you know, you know, the way we've talked about this, I don't recall the episode number, but basically long story short, the studios are always looking to pay less. So they hire 15 different uh, effects companies that all get credited at the end of a, you know, superhero movie. That's why those credits are like 90 minutes long. They all get uh, 90, 100 hour weeks for four weeks and then they're out of work for the next six months. Correct. And then what winds up happening is those companies wind up 
essentially paying to work on these movies. Right, and they have to pay so much overtime and stuff, and it's just a nightmare for everybody, yeah. And uh, when we talk about reality television and people unionizing, we don't want to focus on the Kardashians. That's just the name people can recognize. We're talking about all the reality shows that get broadcast and rebroadcast on cable and all over the place. It's not just on streamers. In fact, when we look at network televisions dealing with the strike, they're all like, let's do reality television. That's cheaper. And we don't got to pay anybody any residuals, right? You're just supposed to be happy you're on Big Brother. You're just supposed to be happy you're on whatever, some cooking show, rather than getting residuals for that. So it's important to know that most of these people are not the Kardashians. They're not making any money. You know, they make, a, they make a nominal amount. They're supposed to be happy to be on the air like a game show. And then they walk away and they see that show broadcast and rebroadcast for years sometimes, and they're not benefiting from it. But everybody wants a cut of the revenue. And that's one of the big arguments from SAG-AFTRA. They say, hey, look, you know, you're all making money off subscriptions and, and, and residuals and all this stuff. Let's set aside 2% of your revenue and we'll share it. We'll use any metric you want to suggest how we slice and dice it, a third-party metric. We're not going to depend on you, but we're not wedded to this one idea. And let's do some revenue sharing. And the studio's like, that's, that's crazy. And sag after says, well, what about sports? Football, baseball, basketball, they all have revenue sharing plans. And so they say it's a reasonable idea. And you think about it. If you want to compare sports to Hollywood, there is no product of NFL without some uniquely talented individuals. You cannot replace that quarterback with any quarterback. You need these uniquely talented people in order to create a high-quality entertainment that people want to watch. And the same is true with movies and television. There's no movies and TV if writers don't write it and actors don't act and directors don't. You can't just put anybody in there to do that. It's not like you're building a widget or a car. It takes skill to build a car. You do need talented people, but the fact is you can train someone to do certain tasks on a car. You can't train anyone to engineer a car or design a car, but to build a car, you have a much wider pool of people. But when you're talking about a movie, a TV show, an NFL football game, a baseball game, there's only a small group of people who can do it and deliver it and bring you a big audience. So if they can revenue share in sports, why can't they revenue share in Hollywood? Well, I guess it's, first of all, sports, they're almost, some of these leagues are, are kind of sanctioned monopolies, but that's another story. Uh, and they There's only, four studios left. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, and they're all vertically integrated, right? They create the product, they put it on their streamer, you know, so, you know, yeah, they're monopolies, they're practically monopolistic too. And I guess I'd, I, I wonder what the sports networks are sharing revenue on. And well, it's not sports networks. We're talking about NFL football makes X amount of billion dollars and their players get like 50%. We're not just talking about like what does a certain channel get. We're talking about the sport overall. The NFL teams make, you know, $50 billion a year. The players get like half of it. And the management okay. gets the other half and they split it up however, you know. So it's not just about like some t cable channel or some app. It's about, or the NFL network. We're talking about, you know, the Dallas Cowboys, the, the Mavericks, the, all these teams, Miami Dolphins, and their revenue is pooled together and the players get half of it. Okay, so yeah, they, they get 48% of the league's, well, Again, this was the deal on the table, uh -huh. but 48% uh, of the league's revenue. So all of the local revenue. So let's say you, you own the, I don't know, Buffalo Bills, all those box suites you sell, 
That's money you keep but as players, dealer. But players make also their salary and other things. Correct. That's not the, Correct. They share Correct. in the revenue of the league, so they can share in the revenue of the studios and the streamers. There's also other, they also have to get paid. <laughs> you know, it's not just about that. But, you know, I mean, with residuals, why not a royalty? If someone watches an episode, you know, the artist doesn't care whether it's on your streamer or on a cable channel. They, they want a certain amount of money. You're making money off of it, even if there's no ads. And guess what? More and more, they're all having ads. You know, so, you know, that there's there's no reason why, you know, streamers would have to share some data on how much a show is watched, you know. So, but, you know, when a song gets played, people don't care if it's on a radio station where there's an ad or it's on a streamer uh, like Spotify or it's on YouTube where they click it on demand or whether it was on a playlist that was offered up to them by Rolling Stone and you're playing it on the Rolling Stone website. Those people get a cut. The same can be done for television and movies. It's not some black box mystery that, oh, well, they watched it on, on Disney Plus, so it doesn't count. No, you're still making money. Every time they watch it, you're benefiting from it, and so they should get a cut. They should get some pay. It's going to be different if it's on a cable channel with ads versus on Disney Plus with no ads or Disney Plus with ads, but nonetheless, they get a cut. It doesn't seem that difficult. Well... I know we have to move on to, to Lizzo, but before we do, I will say this. Right now, they're all losing money, okay? But that's, and, that's not the artist's fault. If the studio, you know, that, that doesn't I'm mean not, that- I'm not when, saying it is. I, right. I, where I was headed with this statement is uh, that they're all losing money. And part, part of the reason they're losing money is the cost of acquisitions. They're trying to, you know, gain market share. Also, they're making so much content, so much of which is not watched, that what will wind up happening is there will just be less content made. The price, uh, the subscription prices will rise. I know we're getting to that in a moment. Uh, and, and, you know, there'll be, I guess, less work. I'm looking ultimately. for my smallest violin. Yes, there's already less work, as uh, Jonathan Handel pointed out to us. There are more right. shows made than ever before, but in terms of the number of episodes and the overall hours being created, there is not less, there is not a ton more product. It's just that it's been sliced and diced up into smaller amounts, and people get smaller work schedules, and they get work for a shorter time of the year. So instead of getting a, booking a show and working for eight months of the year, they're booking a show and working for three months, two months, and then they got no more more work for the rest of the year. Furthermore, you know, they're losing money because they said, let's, let's take stuff off the air where we're profitable on ABC and put it on a streaming app with no ads and charge you $7 a month. Well, that's not the fault of the person who created the show. That's the fault of Bob Iger and Disney. That's, that's right. And that there's a, something to be said about that because, of course, uh, one of the things that went viral this week was the guy, and I can't remember the name of the show. Oh, Suits. He's saying, look, uh, you know, yes, <laughs> yeah. Suits, Suits is so popular over on that Netflix, but I got a residual check for $259. It's like, yes, because it's not being aired on linear television. It was licensed to Netflix. And, and Peacock. And Peacock, and by the way, NBC, Comcast, they own that. NBC Universal owns that. So if they cut poor deals for themselves. To themselves, right, yeah, which is, again, then, part of monopolistic practices and, and yeah. vertical integration. Lawyer up. Yeah, no, this is, he's just saying, look, in the old days when Suits was airing on USA or whatever it was airing yeah, on, get, I, that's a guess, get, you got a real paycheck and you could support yourself and your family. Nowadays, that ain't happening. By the so way, he's only talking about the one episode. He was talking about one particular episode, not uh -huh. all of the episodes he wrote. I'm just telling you that in general, the, the amount of money actors and writers and anybody involved in the show who might get some residuals is dramatically down when it's airing on a stream oh, yeah. oh, rather absolutely. than when it was in syndication. So these are people, we're not talking about the Kardashians, we're talking about people trying to pay their rent 
or do pay you their think mortgage. That that as the streamers inevitably begin to like instead of making forty shows a year at ten billion dollars, and they go, you right. know what, let's make twenty. And we know that people are watching those twenty, and they just make twenty. That they'll go, you know what, instead of making only eight episodes of this one show that we know is popular, let's make I th- like I think they'll do what's like right fifteen or show. eighteen of them. There are some shows that need twelve or fifteen episodes a season. There are others that six or eight or ten is great. Okay. You know, I'm all for the quality. I've loved the UK. You know, you're not forced to be on this treadmill of making 22 episodes a year of a sitcom, which is almost impossible to keep up the quality. Um, you know, so there's different demands for different types of shows and for different platforms. And, you know, it's the new reality where, you know, artists like the flexibility. They're just also trying to pay the bills. Lizzo's trying to pay the bills and she's, got, she's had a bad couple weeks. But we want to suggest that perhaps while the behavior is inappropriate and wrong that have she's been other people are describing that this is not a career ending necessarily sort of situation for Lizzo. Now the lawyers for plaintiffs who are suing Lizzo, uh, several backup dancers who said allege that she treated them inappropriately, forced them to do things they weren't comfortable with, like go to a live sex show in 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 Scandinavia or wherever they were overseas, and they felt like they were having religion forced down their throats by a dance teacher who asked them all to get together and crowd together for prayers before they did stuff. They've all come forward, and now the lawyers say that six more people have contacted them who worked with Lizzo. It sounds like oh, people are coming out of the woodwork to say how terrible Lizzo is. Yes, perhaps, but this is per the lawyers of those plaintiffs. They haven't identified anyone or haven't identified what those people have said. So that's well, ultimately, though, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, none of what is being alleged is actually criminal activity. Well, I don't know. I don't know what you mean by criminal. These are civil lawsuits, so we're not right. saying Liz, people should go to jail. Lizzo has not demanded sex in exchange for work. No one's accusing her of that. Right. They're saying she is a bad boss. Uh, and to back that up, we have the Oscar-nominated director, Sophia Nali Allison. She was going to helm a documentary for Lizzo, went to work. The documentary ultimately happened. I think it was Love Lizzo or something like that. But she quit after just two weeks. And she has now released a statement saying, quote, I witnessed how arrogant, self-centered, and unkind she is. I was not protected and was thrown into a beep situation, a crappy situation, with little support. She also said her gut told her to leave the project, and she's, quote, grateful that she did, adding she, quote, felt gaslit and was deeply hurt, end quote. That does not put Lizzo in a good light. We're not defending Lizzo, but we will say, saying somebody is arrogant, self-centered, and unkind, I wouldn't want to work for them either, and that's stuff that people should not have to put up with on a job, but it's not the same as talking about sexual harassment sexual assault or things that we've seen for Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and some other people. So it's not good for Lizzo. It goes against her public image and how we saw her and see her and want to see her. And she'll have to address all this at some point. But yeah, this is not career ending stuff. It's not good stuff. But so far, we're not hearing anything like people are like, can she ever come back? It's like, well, you know, yeah, maybe she she's can. not. A, maybe she's a jerk behind the scenes. Welcome to real life where all your artists who you think are lovable or can be jerks. They're driven, egomaniacal people who want the world paying attention to them. So they're not all lovable people. And I don't want to work for them either. But, you know, hopefully if she has things to improve on, she will do that. But so far, you know, let's calm down in terms of the, uh, you know, pitchforks and the, and the burning. What do you call them? 
I don't know. Burning. You know, pitchforks and burn, you bring burning torches, you know, to go to uh-huh. Dr. Frankenstein's castle. Oh, well, all I'm saying is, you know, we, but we did mention suits before. And we did. Uh, that brings us to uh, streaming. We've got some good numbers. Four shows in uh, the end of July, mid July, July 10th through July 16th. Four of those shows hit the 1 billion minutes mark, at least 1 billion minutes reviewed. In the case of suits, the biggest show, 3.7 billion minutes reviewed. It's a record in a single week from this metric for an acquired show. So and it's suits- not it's not measuring all the minutes viewed. We should mention that oh, you know there's a all. lot Go of right minutes ahead. that are, Yeah, I mean look look, it does it what if you watch on your phone? Not being measured, right? My laptop is where I watch it all. Right. They're not covering all sorts of stuff. And it's only North America only. So Nielsen reports on viewership on Amazon Prime, Apple, Disney Plus, HBO Max. Hulu, Netflix, Peacock, Pluto, and Tubi. And it's only covering attention it can track on smart televisions. If you're watching it in any other way or in any other platform, they're not catching it. And it's only the US only, not even Canada. It's just US only. So that's what we're talking about. In that sliver of viewership, which Nielsen can track, and prevent, provide information as a third-party company we can trust, Suits was viewed 3.7 billion minutes la- that one week. That's about a month ago. 3.7 billion minutes, a record for a, sh- a sh- rerun, basically. Suits, it's rerunning on Netflix and Peacock. Bluey on Disney Plus hit 1.3 billion minutes. The Lincoln Lawyer Season 2 is at 1.2 billion minutes, and my friends say it's better than Season 1. And Jack Ryan, in its final season, its fourth and final season, I believe, hit 1.1 billion minutes. So that is two original shows, one on Prime Video, Amazon, and one on Netflix. And Bluey, which I guess they're still creating new episodes, but I don't know if that happened when this was you know, when these numbers were hit, that's on Disney Plus and Suits, which is on Netflix and Peacock, as well as on some cable channels. So that's a lot of stuff going on this week, but that's good to see. And I think it's a big deal because, you know, you're seeing all those original shows created, but guess what? Again and again, you're seeing a lot of attention for since we've been tracking this for shows like Suits and Grey's Anatomy and Coco Melon and SWAT and Big Bang Theory and Supernatural and Outlander, all of which are on the top 10 of the acquired series for the week that we're tracking here. So yes, original programming can be huge, but they're also making a lot of money off of shows that used to be shown in syndication and are now also seen on streamers and creating a lot of attention and bringing in a lot of revenue. So it's a big deal, and actors, want actors, writers, and directors want a cut of that. Hey, if that's a big deal, what about some of the stories in our Big Deal or Big Whoop segment? You know, Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment, copyrighted, not really, where we discuss <laughs> the top headlines and entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, I mean, be careful what you wish for. When Paramount was holding a fire sale to build up a war chest for the streaming wars, it sold CNET for $500 million, its CBS studio lot for $1.85 billion, and then BlackRock headquarters uh, over there in New York for $760 million. Only adding to the homelessness crisis. Right. Well, (laughs) you're selling off all your, your home and your studio, and they're on the street corners now anyway. Uh, Well, then it set up a deal to offload another crown jewel. Simon and Schuster, one of the biggest publishers in the world and the home of Colleen Hoover, Stephen King, and many other best-selling authors. The only problem, what do you think it was? Well, its buyer was the owner of Penguin Random House, and combining these two massive publishers would make make it control what, like something like 
just shy of 50% of the entire U.S. publishing market. So, you know, uh, the Justice Department went, uh-huh, yeah, um, we're going to look into that. So that deal fell apart. Paramount got a sweet $200 million from uh, PRH, and now it's found a new buyer, private equity firm KKR. Oh. They're buying them for a cool $1.6 billion. KKR insists it wants to invest in the publisher and make it even more competitive. Just like so, they did with Toys R Us. Yeah, well, here's the here's the thing. I think, uh, you know, PRH, KKR, you know, let's face it, Paramount is uh, in love with its three three-letter acronyms. Big deal or big whoop? Right. So Simon & Schuster is selling, being sold to a private equity firm. Is it a big deal? Yes, it is. Uh, by the way, if Penguin Random House wants to buy a podcast, uh, we're open to negotiations, especially if we can get a, uh, a payment if the deal falls through. <laughs> but believe me, it won't. <laughs> anyway, Penguin Random House has 37% of the North American market. Simon & Schuster has 11% of the U.S. market, I should say. So those are the numbers we're talking about. It should have fallen through. Um, when you talk about be careful what you wish for, in my sake, it's like getting a private equity firm to buy them is the worst possible scenario. Um, so that's just uh, sad to hear. Hopefully they will hold on to it long term and build it up, but that's not how private equity firms roll, is it? Uh, and by the way, Paramount, you know, selling your CBS studio lot for $1.8 billion, selling BlackRock and then having to rent your own headquarters back from the people who now own it. Those are all really, really short-term moves that are really going to hurt you long-term. And if they're worried about the downturn in advertising, why the hell would you sell Simon & Schuster, which is impervious to the advertising market? It's not like CNET even, which of course does depend on ads to a degree. It's not like one of your cable channels or UPN. It's It's impervious to that. So that would seem to be a really good, solid business that would be a good source of revenue if that's what you're looking for. So what did you say they're doing when they sell off BlackRock and CBS Studio? At this point, they're just burning the furniture. They're like <laughs> burning the furniture. We got to stay warm. What do we do? Because yeah. it, I, none of these are additive. Right. And if you look at the notes, we have a little bit on the Supreme Court justices and their book sales. Publishers Weekly did a, a rundown. Basically, liberals read books and conservatives, not so much. So the liberals have most of the best-selling books. But just like Paramount was selling stuff off to try and raise money, what's happening at Disney? Well, okay, so everyone is talking about their quarterly earnings and putting a good spin on bad news or putting a great spin on good news. Mostly, by the way, the former, not the latter. Uh, but we'll focus on just Disney, okay? Disney is looking to hit $5.5 billion in cost savings. So take that, Warner Brothers Discovery. <laughs> They're beginning with the very realistic step of firing some 7,000 employees. They already did that. It's uh, direct-to-consumer losses, mostly streaming, of course. Uh, they were just $500 million. That's more, oh. than and yeah, more than half of what it was one year ago and 20% less Good for you. Quarter. I yeah. lost half a billion dollars. Success. Well, remember when like uh, Bob Chapek was like, look, it's not a billion dollars anymore. It's only 800 million. So we're doing great. Exactly. And, and then the board was like, hey, Bob, can you uh, come on in and close the door behind you? <laughs> that was back in November, of course. Uh, Iger said he expects three areas to drive growth. Hmm, film studios, film okay. studios. Okay, so that's that's a good news. Theme parks, okay. and and that's you know kind of those two kind of, kind of go together in some regard. And streaming, that would be the aspirational one. Yeah. Well, now here's the thing. That's another diss on ABC and its traditional broadcasting cable channels, or just realistic since they may contribute revenue, but they they're not growing. Okay, they're slowly going down. 
Yes, Disney lost 12 million subscribers in India since it lost the rights to cricket. Oh, and some you're, rights. yeah, well, some rights. They're, they're going to pay more. Here's the thing. This is the, this is like burying the lead because you're going to pay more for Disney and Hulu if you don't want to see ads. Remember that bargain basement $7 price they introduced it at? Remember yes. all that? Yeah, yeah. It's now $14, okay? Or, by the way, $20 if you bundle Disney Plus and Hulu together. Turns out ads are really, really profitable. Did you know <laughs> that if you put, like, let's say you make a television This episode show. brought to you by Delicious Biscuits. Delicious yeah. Biscuits are always the best. Make sure you buy lots of Delicious Biscuits. Listen, uh, Garrison Keeler, uh, just uh, calm down there. Uh, but, <laughs> Thank you. Good, but, good, good call. Yeah. Here's the thing: if you make a television show or like eight episodes of one, and then you like interrupt those television shows like every like 15 minutes for like ads, mm -hmm. and you put them on like not all at once, but like over a long period of time, and you know you could broadcast them or you could put them on stream. You make more money than if you just like sell a streaming service. Did you know that? Huh. Yeah, who knew? Who would have known? Uh, by the way, uh, you know, yes, ads are really profitable. So much so they're launching the ad-supported version of, of all of their services in Europe. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, well, you tell me. I think uh, it's a big deal for the following reasons. It's really just signaling where the industry is at right now. Yes, it's Disney we're talking about, but it could also be it could also be Warner Brothers Discovery. It could also be NBC Universal Comcast. It's basically they've all they all chased Netflix over the edge. Netflix is finally making money. And they're kind of three or four years behind going, wow, this is really hard. It's really costly. And by doing this, we kind of decimated our linear television, um, which was happening anyway, but we kind of expedited that problem. And it's we have to figure something out here. We have to start uh, making money. We're going to start a password crackdown. So we're going to try and gain subscribers that way. And we're going to mm -hmm. have to actually raise the cost because, you know, everybody likes free stuff, but we were giving away free content. We were saying, here's, you know, all of the all of these TV shows for $7 a month, but it was really costing us about $30 a month to provide it to you. The one thing that I know is that cutting the cord is not going to save you any money. <laughs> not if you still want to watch a lot of stuff. Right. It will so, save you money if you don't subscribe to anything. Correct. <laughs> but that, that brings us to Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business, and more importantly, how they affect you. Does this affect you, Sperling? It might, because you're about to start spending the milk money on college sports. That's right, because uh, I heard that if you bet on Georgia at the beginning of the season when they win the national championship of collegiate mm -hmm. football at the mm -hmm. end of the season you could make a lot of money also you have to know that they're going to win that thing first so you could actually lose a lot of money oh. if you yeah so that's the thing with betting you know uh in the u.s long story short in 2016 supreme court ruling made it uh legal to do gambling for states to control the gambling rights uh, it's heavily regulated. And to get a license to run an online gambling service, it takes a lot of work and a lot of licensing. And th all of these regulators, they look at who's running these, these businesses. Do they have any bankruptcies in their past? 
Do they, you know, any moral conflicts? And that and, brings us to Disney, the squeaky, clean, family-friendly Disney Corporation. It's a safe bet that if you're a sports fan, you're probably also a gambling fan. You can't listen to sports radio or watch sports coverage on TV or read about it in newspapers and magazines or websites and not hear a lot about gambling. And not just during the Triple Crown when you say, maybe I'll, you know, with my friends, we'll all have a little fun dollar bet about who's going to win the, the Kentucky Derby. Sports outlets now tell you about point spreads and odds and all sorts of things that would have seemed beyond the pale just a few years ago when people were supposed to watch sports just for the love of the game. Nowadays, now they tell you how an injury might affect the fantasy team of a fan before they tell you how it might affect the actual team a player is on. And that explains why ESPN is all in on gambling. Disney's ESPN struck a sports betting pact with Penn Entertainment that makes the Disney empire a major player in gambling with a standalone betting app called ESPN Bet. As a bonus now, Penn will be selling off the obnoxious Barstool website back to its owner. Uh, they can't compete by doing any gambling for a long time or never. I'm not sure what. But anyway, uh, and they still have a stake in Barstool, but Penn has cut ties with Barstool, which they've only been connected to for a few years ago. They're all in with Disney, who Bob Iger once said, we will not ever gamble, even though they had a gambling deal about four or five or six years ago. But anyway, when you're trying to talk about reaching out to sports fans, uh, and people who maybe haven't made a big bet yet, doing it through ESPN, maybe for the Kentucky Derby or the Super Bowl, eh, just download that ESPN app. That seems like kind of fun, right? Wholesome, squeaky clean. Or it could and even be on the ESPN app that I've already downloaded and getting my scores from it. It's like, oh, I can bet on tomorrow's game. Huh. There'll certainly be a link there. So Bob Iger did make a pledge. Disney will not get involved in gambling until we do. Well, he said it, he didn't think it went with the brand. However, however, there's a big however here. Uh, Disney, the company, not ESPN, okay, Disney kind of uh, said, hey, you know what? We have this ESPN network, and we could run ads on our network for mm -hmm. FanDuel or DraftKings, who, two of the bigger online gambling, you know, sports gambling sites, and they cut a deal with DraftKings that gave them, you know, a little percentage uh, of, of investment uh, into DraftKings. They ran their ads and did some, you know, co-branding and things like that. Uh, and they said, you'll be the exclusive gambling site that we will link to and, and integrate you into all our digital enterprises. And that was back like eight years ago. It fell apart because of legal. They just started it. It just came into effect. And then they had to back up because there were legal complications. But they were ready to make a deal eight years ago under Bob Iger. Right, but it, but it wasn't necessarily for ESPN Direct. Now well, it was. Definitely... It was you go to ESPN.com, and there is the ad for DraftKings. It's all integrated into their digital enterprises. So, of course, where else would you put ads for DraftKings except ESPN? Why would you make a deal other than that? No, but what I mean is it's not called like ESPN gambling. No, now they've done it to the nth level. That's right. They were sort of like, well, all right, we'll make, you know, we'll make money and let you be the guys and we'll just, you know, we'll be, you'll be there and we're linked to you, but we can still pretend our hands are clean. Now their hands aren't clean. Is it a problem? I mean, obviously ESPN is a huge brand. There's no doubt people who would not have said, oh, I'm going to call a bookie or I'm going to, you know, download DraftKings, which I've yeah, never done, well, though my brother certainly has. I'm sure he lives on DraftKings, uh, stuff like that. I would never do that. But maybe, you know, Kentucky Derby, uh, five bucks, that'll be fun, right? You know what? They're going to uh, lure in that casual fan, that person who has not done this before, because there is a possibility they're too late to the game, don't you think? 
Yeah, I mean, look, this is not a game-changing uh, deal. It's $1.5 billion over 10 years, so it's like between $100 and $150 million a year. And they're But surely there's late- profit-sharing, or there's surely there's, you know, they're going to— have The no bigger idea. it gets, the more money they'll make, because that's, you know, it's not a pure pay us and you can keep everything, you know, right? I mean, if this explodes, as you can imagine, it might. I mean, there's a feeling like everybody who wants to gamble is already on DraftKings or one of these other sites, right? Right. That's really the thing is that they're really late to the game here. Uh, DraftKings and, and FanDuel, as you point out, they're the two biggest and even they're not profitable. And they've been spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to gain market share. The only differentiation between them is how much marketing they do. Right. And but ESPN is already everywhere. Exactly. Fans are exactly. already at ESPN. So when you've got the ESPN app, ESPN bet, You've already got the fans. You've got the eyeballs. You don't have to draw them to you. They're there. So not only will you get the gamblers, you're like, well, it's easier this way. You're more likely to get in casual people who have never gambled before. And then you're going to find out there's going to be stories all over the country about people who got addicted to gambling because it was so easy on ESPN.com, you know, ESPN bet. And suddenly Disney is getting people addicted to gambling and destroying their lives. That's, well, well, those stories will appear. Will that hurt their brand? Only if Mickey Mouse is seen breaking somebody's legs. <laughs> no, no. I'm, if you, I, I would think Donald would be the enforcer, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it just goes to show you what's important about this story is it goes to show you that ESPN, the value to Disney mm-hmm. is declining, and mm-hmm. they are looking to replace the revenue that the carriage fees. You know, the carriage fees are declining because, of course, there are fewer sub- subscribers to. But each. the value of ESPN is not declining. The, the Maybe some of value. the revenue from the yeah, but. Yeah. They the know revenue. they have to pivot slowly and surely, but it's a hugely valuable thing. It's just the content costs so much for them to acquire. Correct. But like, yeah. It's hugely valuable because they know they can leverage it to make a ton of money off of gambling. You that's, know, why you you can, hear, that's why you hear right now, well, first of all, you have the gambling thing. You hear, uh, hey, we need a strategic partner. Uh, yeah. That's really what you're hearing is, is Bob Iger out there and the board out there going, how can we replace some of this revenue we've lost? Gamble. And I don't think it'll hurt their brand because I think gambling is as American as apple pie. I wish it would because, I mean, I don't want to get involved in gambling. I don't think prohibition works, but it just, nobody benefits by gambling. It just destroys lives. It's a bad business like casinos. They want to put a casino in Times Square. What a horrible idea. It creates bad jobs and people who are addicted and get their lives ruined from it. It doesn't create a good job culture. It's crappy jobs in general, and it just ruins a neighborhood. And oh, hold on, really I just good. got a text. I just got a text from Steven Soderbergh. He said he would not have uh, a revived career without Ocean's Eleven, and Ocean's Eleven takes place in a casino, and that he's very grateful for. <laughs> for Ocean's Eleven, well, yeah, you know, gambling in Vegas and Atlantic City, once in a blue moon, great. But gambling in every town in this country, which is what we've got practically, and lottery tickets, which are just a regressive tax on poorer people, not so good. By the way, a public service announcement. I was very dismayed to learn after downloading DraftKings that uh, it has nothing to do with draft beer. Oh, there you go. There you go. Oh, hey, man, I'm in uh, town all week. I'm in town all week. <laughs> By the way, I've never downloaded DraftKings, but um, you know, maybe I should just to see what it's all about. Powder milk biscuits. Powder milk biscuits. They're so delicious and good to eat. Well, Garrison Keillor is still alive. Okay. He is. He's not, he's not working that much anymore, but he is retired. All right, I would, but some people have unfortunately died, and we will we'll power through them pretty quickly, though we'll give a little extra time to Robbie Robertson. Uh, Emmy winner Johnny Hardwick died at 64. Did you ever watch King of the Hill, the animated sitcom from Greg Daniels and Mike Judge? Yes, I did. 
Yeah, I thought I mean, it was he, a very was good sitcom. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was a very good sitcom. It ran for thirteen seasons. I didn't watch all thirteen seasons, but the first three or four or five years were were excellent. It was a very good sitcom, and Johnny Hardwick. Almost had a sitcom deal for a live action show once or twice, and it didn't quite work. And he was in L.A. doing a stand-up bit about his Texas dad. And Greg Daniels and Mike Judge were in the audience and hired him while they were working on a new show called King of the Hill. And that animated series uh, became Johnny Hardwick's career. He wrote a number of episodes. He did various producing roles, and he voiced the role of conspiracy-obsessed Dale Gribble for the entire run. That happened after Daniel Stern... Uh, they couldn't come to terms. They had cast Daniel Stern, but they couldn't make that deal happen. And now the show's being rebooted. So unfortunately, Johnny Hardwick dead at 64, but maybe Daniel Stern can carry on the legacy. A huge loss is Clarence Avant, the Black Godfather. That's his loving nickname. Clarence Avant, a major figure in entertainment, politics, and sports, certainly for the black community and Hollywood at large. He died at the age of 92. He did it key roles in so many different areas. He did everything. He went from nightclubs to founding two record labels, bringing to the world Bill Withers, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Sixto Rodriguez, who also died this week. He helped oversee the sale of Stax, the classic label. He was chairman of the board of Motown at one point, the first black board member at Polygram. He started a black-owned radio station. He managed Sarah Vaughn. He advised numerous presidents, including Jimmy Carter, George Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama not Donald Trump. He nudged NFL star Jim Brown into acting. He got baseball star Hank Aaron the largest endorsement deal in history at that time for an athlete and mentored everyone, like from Muhammad Ali to Janet Jackson and on and on and on. He's a major figure in the the world that we cover, and it's a shame to see him go. You probably aren't aware of Shelly Smith. She's a model and actor. She died at 70. She was a model appearing on lots of covers of magazines in the 70s, and then she broke into acting appeared regularly in all sorts of shows, but she landed good roles in two prestige series that never quite clicked. One was The Associates, a favorite of mine starring Martin Short and overseen by James L. Brooks, and the military drama For Love and Honor with Yafik Koto and David Caruso. The Associates was inspired by the film The Paper Chase. Uh, For Love and Honor was inspired by the film An Officer and a Gentleman, and she never quite made it there. Those shows didn't last, but She's really well remembered for being a really good guest on game shows like the $20,000 Pyramid. Then she pivoted, got a master's degree, founded a company to help people who are infertile get egg donations. So an interesting career, but I'm mentioning her because you cannot see the associates on any streamer. You cannot easily buy it on DVD or Blu-ray. I don't think it ever came out. Almost invisible. You can find bootleg copies of it on YouTube along with like, 10 Speeding Brown Shoes, which, is, uh, which I think is available elsewhere. The Associates is on YouTube. All these shows that you can't find them anywhere, if you Google them, there will be complete episodes on YouTube. And I think that shows there's a demand for them because I don't think there's a legit version. It's just like practically a camera held up in front of a TV. But if you want to watch some of these shows that have slipped through the cracks, that's the only way to do it. I wish more stuff was available. Did you ever see The Fantastics, the little off-off-Broadway musical? Decades ago. Well, yeah, that's the only way to say it. So you did. It ran in New York City from 1960 to 2002 for 42 years. Then it came again 
just four years later, from 2006 to 2017, another 11-year run. It's amazing. I was in New York from 1991 to 2019, and I never saw it. Somehow, it was always there. It would never go away, and I never quite had the moment when I thought I should see it, and it just slipped through my fingers. But it didn't slip through the fingers of Tom Jones, the talent behind the book and lyrics for the pocket musical, The Fantastics. He died at 95. He and his creative partner, Harvey Schmidt, did 110 in the Shade, a great adaptation of The Rainmaker. They did I Do, I Do, uh, a two-hander that was a hit up Broadway and ran in Minneapolis for 22 years. They also did a show called Celebration. They had a version of Our Town that was a musical, but mostly they're known for The Fantastics, a bare-bones production with no sets, minimal props, and wistful numbers like Try to Remember, which Sperlin will sing at the end of the show. It became the longest-running musical in history for those 42 years. Of course, The Mousetrap with Agatha Christie is the longest-running play in history. We mentioned um, Clarence Avant, who just died. Uh, Clarence, Clarence Avant, who just died this week. So did Sixto Rodriguez, who was immortalized in the film Sugar Man, a documentary no, well, searching, searching, for, for, sugar. searching yeah. for Sugar Man. He died at 81. It's hard to think of two musicians with more polar opposite careers than Sixto Rodriguez and Robbie Robertson. Sixto released a couple albums. They never clicked. He went back to working on the line in Detroit. Robbie Robertson. Well, no, he was, was a, a construction worker. And, and that too. Yeah, he, he was in, he was did multiple things, yes. And then we had Robbie Robertson, who was backing Dylan, backing uh, Ronnie Hawkins, and then the band, one of the great groups of all time, and a storied career, scoring films for Martin Scorsese, beloved forever. Couldn't be more different. They both died this week. Sixto died at the age of 81. The film documented how he found out, oh my God, I'm huge in South Africa and Australia. (laughs) So that's kind of interesting. And Robbie Robertson, of course, had a great career, but like a lot of artists, he had a peak 10 to 15 years uh, from the mid-60s to the mid-late 70s with the Hawks, he and his other guys who would form the band, one of the great groups of all time, backed rock and roller Ronnie Hawkins. Then they backed Bob Dylan, standing alongside him when he went electric and endured all those boos. Then Dylan had a terrible motorcycle accident. They all hung out in upstate New York and recorded the basement tapes which practically invented the bootleg album. That album officially came out in 1975. And then those guys formed the band, one of the great groups of all time. Music from Big Pink and the band in 68 and 69, uh, plus um, the Basement Tapes. All three of those albums are on Rolling Stone's current list of the best albums of all time. And then they did some more music and tapped it all off by touring with Dylan and then having The Last Waltz, a great swan song farewell, even though the band got back together later without Robbie. But they had a great goodbye with Martin Scorsese documenting it all and creating one of the great rock and roll concert films of all time with The Last Waltz. So from there, Mid 60s to 1978, they did it all. And they all did other stuff later. But if you really want to know what matters, it's that work from 1966 to 1976. Listen to the band self titled album. Listen to music from Big Pink. Watch The Last Waltz. And you know what? Later this year, when Killers of the Flower Moon hits theaters, Sperling's already heard it, but we can hear one of Robbie's last film scores for Killers of the Flower Moon from director Martin Scorsese. And here's, I'm sorry, Sperling. I thought this was hilarious. Our friend Sal Nunziato from Burning Wood will have a link to his website on our show notes where he talks about all things music. He posted a remembrance of Robbie Robertson, and one of his readers wrote in and put this story in. It's got a movie theatrical exhibition angle, so I thought you might like it, Sperling. This guy wrote, 
All right, here's a little humor. He said, I went to see The Last Waltz the day it premiered in New Orleans and the earliest showing. The theater was mostly empty, except for several other stoner types. Right before the film starts, these two proverbial little old ladies walk in and sit down. The rest of us kind of look at each other and we shrug our shoulders. About 10 minutes into the film, right after Robbie Robertson starts making this extremely explicit comment about women's vaginas, I'm paraphrasing here, and Sinatra, the two little ladies get up, they start to walk out, and as they're walking out, one of them turns to the other and says, well, that certainly wasn't about dancing. (laughs) (laughs) It was, in fairness, it was called The Last Waltz. The Last Waltz, yeah. Well, that's not about dancing, is it? (laughs) Well, you know what I think is, uh, and it just doesn't have to do with Robbie Robertson per se, but what are the odds that we would be in our obituary section talking about Rodriguez, Sixto Rodriguez, and Clarence Avant yeah. in the same week. Because if you recall, in Searching for Sugar Man, the whole premise is that, you know, this guy disappeared in the U.S. and right. went back to construction work. But somehow his records were selling, like, they were best sellers in South Africa, and he didn't even know it. Well, Clarence Avant did, and when the filmmakers went and said, hey, we, we found Rodriguez, and uh, he's in Detroit, but he's a huge star in South Africa. Um, you've been selling records there. Where's all the money? And Clarence Avant was like, uh, uh. Well, actually, a lot of them were, were bootlegged, I believe. Yeah, well, was there was during a lot the, of... It was during the apartheid era, so. Yeah. And he kind of played, and, like, he's in the film. He's in the mm-hmm. film, uh, Searching for Sugarman. Yep. So interesting story there, kind of like all of our stories on this week's episode. But you know what? I guarantee you our stories will be just as interesting next week, which (gasps) is why you should not miss it, which is why you should subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free is where you can usually find us. And please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do that, by the way. Uh, You know what? That information, those ways to subscribe to us, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, all of that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Uh, you'll, you can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also uh, on Twitter, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Again, all that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website. Who is MGMT.com? Michael Giltz has a website every week. It's something new and exciting for us. What is it this week, Michael? Or can I guess it has to do with Robbie Robertson? Powder milk biscuits. Powder milk biscuits. They're so delicious. They're so good. Make sure you stock up on powder milk biscuits when you're listening to Music from Big Pink by the band. Dot com. Dot com. <laughs> but, if, but if you know what, if that domain name is too long to type in, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated, all of his coverage of the entertainment industry can be found there. My work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs>